Hey, good morning. Welcome to the program. Let's pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord our God, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for who you are, for all that you've done for us. Lord, I thank you for the gift of this day. I thank you for All Souls Day. I do pray, Lord our God, for all of those who have gone before us in faith. I thank you, Lord, for the gift of the saints in our family trees, for the loved ones who have gone before us in faith, who continue to pray for us now. Lord, we do remember those souls in purgatory. We do pray for them, for the repose of their souls. And we do pray, Lord, for those who are near to death, but far from God. And we do make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. During my time in Rome, one of the things that was quite popular to do was to visit the various churches, lots of churches all over the city. And I stumbled into a famous church. It's actually more of a side set of chapels off of the main church. The church is called the Bone Church. And some friends of mine at the North American College where I was studying said, let's go see the Bone Church. I'm like, cool, what's the Bone Church? Well, come to find out, the main church is like many other beautiful churches uh, of in the city. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't remember if it was Baroque or Romanesque or if it was Gothic in style, uh, but it was the side chapels that uh, were the thing that jumped out, <laughs> and I think is the principal reason for visitors. This is a Franciscan church, and one of the options that Franciscans had, I don't know quite how all of this worked out, was that after death, they had uh, the option, or they were given the opportunity to donate their bones to be used in the bone church, in these side chapels. And the way that it worked was, and this is from my memory now, uh, you'd enter at like sort of the, the front end, let's call it the front end of the church, the back of the church, right? But this would be the first chapel you'd go in. And the chapels were all on your left. So you're kind of on the right-hand side down below, uh, at the at the street level of the church, and going um, going along the 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 chapels one after the other, what jumped out immediately was the fact that in each of these side chapels were chapels that were made principally decorated principally from the bones, <laughs> the holy remains of these Franciscan monks, thigh bones and arm bones, and hand bones, and uh, decorated, used in decorations, hands, and, uh, you know, in, in, sp in different kind of artistic displays, uh, uh, on the walls, um, around the altar, as the altar, and going from one to the other of these chapels was a, a little bit shaking, right? It was like, okay, what is going on here? And I, I I don't remember if it was the third or the fourth one. The further you went down, there there were a couple of monks in full habits, but it was their skeletons that were in the habits. 
So some monks remained, I think, I guess it would seem, pretty much intact, at least their skeletal structure. And they were dressed in, and, and you're going from each of these each of these chapels and, and you're praying, right? You're praying as you're as you're going over you're trying to pray. <laughs> and then when you get to the end, there's a sign on the wall. It's in Italian. And the sign says, as you are, we once were. As we are, you one day will be. Let me say that again. As you are, you, you visitors that are walking and looking upon all of these bones, all of these remains of us, we, these Franciscan uh, friars who are, have donated our, our, our remains to decorate these chapels, as you are, we once were. As we are, you one day will be. It is the fullest display of what in customary or traditional Catholic uh, uh, art and even um, on uh, some desks or in studies, a human skeleton called a memento mori, a remembrance of death. So there was this traditional idea that it was salutary, it was health-bringing, it was healthy and helpful to remember your last end, to remember your death, that one day you will die. And it's going to interrupt the maybe comfortable existence that you have right now. And somehow it's going to be helpful if you live today in the light of what's coming at some point in your future. One day you will be like those skeletons. Uh, some monks in certain communities even had as a task to build their wooden casket uh, or coffin, their wooden coffin, and they would sleep in it. That would be their bed, as they would sleep inside the coffin that they had made for themselves. Once again, a, a nightly reminder that this life that we live here and now on earth is not the be-all, end-all. In fact, it's short in comparison to what comes after. And so uh, the, the idea of attending to the reality of death and of our own death can, can bring a lot of good to our spiritual lives. I know it sounds a bit morose, to use a very proper word there. Uh, it, it seems like it, it's like that's a that that's a downer that really kind of takes away the joy out of the room. And until you stop and say, no, no, wait a minute, this is all about preserving and protecting us for the joy that we're made for. The ultimate joy that we're made for is the joy that is ours with God. But then it also gets us thinking about, hopefully, gets us to stop and think about the reality of what happens after our death. Now, later in the month, I'm going to um, go into a more explicit examination of the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And going through those four last things, I, I will, uh, oh, this sounds funny, dig into the reality of death a bit more. 
But in the meantime, I want to reflect on the reality of death from the standpoint of today's feast day. Today's feast day is All Souls Day. Yesterday, All Saints Day was what? It was that day on the church's calendar, a, a holy day of obligation, where we didn't just call to mind and, and lift up liturgically as a church before the eyes of the faithful the uh, noble, holy, heroic life of one of our members, uh, but instead we're lifting them all up. The great cloud of witnesses, the great cloud of witnesses that is the saints in heaven now. On my way home from Mass uh, on All Saints Day, and I'm recording this on All Saints Day evening, uh, one of my kids said, Dad, what are the saints doing in heaven? I said, well, one of the things they're doing is they're praying for you. They are the cloud of witnesses, right? From the letter to the Hebrews, this great cloud of witnesses, uh, chapter 13, verse 1, they, uh, what are they doing? They're cheering us on as we run the race. Sports analogies work well with my kiddos because when I say to them, you're the ones that are on the court. You're the ones that are on the field. The saints are the ones that are in the stands. They've already finished the race. Now they are cheering you on because how you live is what makes the difference right now as far as Christ and his light and life shines forth in this world. So the saints are are praying for you. They're cheering you on. And so, what a great thing to reflect on, on All Saints Day, is the call that we have to be saints, and the call that we have to uh, strive for the heights of holiness while we have the time to do that here and now. That God has willed for each of us that call, and how yesterday I talked about two attributes that are typical and apparent and often in an exemplary degree on display in the lives of saints that we most need, that we seem to most lack today, that would be zeal and courage. And so yesterday I had a chance to reflect on that, and and my hope and prayer is that you will pray for zeal and courage, and that you'll see opportunities arise because they'll come at you. These opportunities will come to you. You don't have to even go seek them out, but they will come to you. In the workplace, among your family, uh, in your own life, you'll be convicted about things that you're doing, saying, or thinking, or, or avoiding. And it's going to take a bit of courage and a bit of zeal to say, you know what, I'm passionate enough about that that I need to take action on that. I need to do something about that. I can't just let that be. I can't let, just can't let that go on. So today, uh, I want to focus on, I'm going to focus on, the reality of the souls in purgatory. So purgatory, what is purgatory all about? You probably hear about this quite a bit in the course of the day. If you listen to Catholic radio or you go online to your favorite um, podcasts or channels, um, it's going to be one of those natural places for us to pause. And and so I want to give my own way of talking about it, because I know my kids have found it helpful. Maybe you'll find it helpful as well. So we do know that after death, we face our judgment. And with our judgment comes the uh, 
the 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 being put placed in or towards our final destination, which is heaven or hell. And again, I'll go into the 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 final uh, the the four final uh, the final realities, uh, the four last things uh, later this month, and and talk about them in a way that um, we'll explore them more fully. But in the meantime, just talking about purgatory, what is purgatory? What is purgatory all about? So I'm going to talk about purgatory from the standpoint of reason, talk about it in terms of scripture, talk about it in terms of history, and, um, and, and therefore from the standpoint of like our tradition of faith. So let's just start with a really like just logical, rational approach to purgatory. And it's based on a couple of key ideas that are present um, uh, in our faith. The first is that well, we're alive here on earth and living in a fallen world. We're not perfect. And as we live our lives, we damage our own selves. Our, we wound our minds, our hearts, our spirits, our, even our bodies uh, by how we live or by the vic- being the victim of other people's sins and just being part of a world that's not yet fully redeemed in Christ. And yet then we die. And then when we face the Lord in judgment, let's say that we uh, pass judgment and we are uh, saved and therefore we're ready to enter heaven, correct? Well, we know that when we arrive in heaven, that we'll be perfect. I do not want to live in heaven the way that I am right now. I just don't. Even if I had gone to confession, gone to confession, gone to confession, have all my sins washed away, I am sitting here today, I do not want to live heaven like this. There are so many ways in which the wounds of my past, in my memory, my imagination, my passions, my intellect, my will, are just broken. They're bound up. They are atrophied. They're not fully alive. And honestly, there's still some damage that I've caused through my own sin that I have yet to make up for. And and that's a that's not a complicated concept, right? The difference between being forgiven and making up for the damage that one has caused. And that's called satisfaction. So there's a difference between forgiveness or reconciliation and satisfaction, which is being held accountable for the things I've done. So the example that I like to use is growing up playing baseball in the backyard. Um, sometimes, uh, I would throw the ball too hard. It wasn't a good throw. And I very distinctly remember one time, and this was one of many times that this happened in the course of growing up, I threw the ball and a window broke. <laughs> Did you like how I said that passive voice? A window broke. No, I broke a window by throwing the ball wildly. And so went inside. My mom had heard, saw the smashed window on the floor. I went in and I said, Mom, I'm, I accuse myself. I did it. Mom, I broke the window. I am so sorry. Mom, please forgive me. And she says, I forgive you. You will make up for it. <laughs> so she forgave me. 
What I did was careless. What I did was wrong. It was an accident, but it was still careless. And I was sorry for it. She forgave me. I was reconciled to her. But the completion wasn't, com- the, the, the act, the action of being reconciled wasn't completed yet because I had to make up for the damage that I caused. I was forgiven, but there was still the damage that had to be made up for. And so I said, you know, I, well, I'll make up for it. it means I had to do extra chores and, and then pay for the window. Okay, I'm up against a break. Back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Okay, continuing on from where we just left off. If you take a look at the difference between the life that we are, the state that we're in now and the state that will be ours in heaven, the state of being completely healed, unbound, set free, we will uh, recover what we've lost. We will be restored in every way. We will uh, grow and blossom in accord with what God's will and plan is for our intellect and our will. We will be fully alive and free. Our passions and our our appetites are you know are with uh, will align with our our will and our thoughts and our memories and it'll all be clean, clear, beautiful, perfect. When I die, even if I get better, I'm going to get better, hopefully. I'll grow and I'll mature in the course of my life. But let's get to that last moment when I'm alive. That last moment when I'm alive. Am I going to be fully fitted and ready to go for heaven? That last second that I'm alive, when I die, just before I die? I don't think so. But I do know this. The first moment that I enter heaven, the first moment that I experience heaven, I'll be perfect. So how do I go from being at the last moment I'm here on earth, the last moment of consciousness here on earth, and I die, I'm imperfect, and the first moment of consciousness that I have in heaven with God is I'm fully perfect. So how do I go from being imperfect at death to being perfect in heaven when all that remains is that after-death encounter with Christ? The answer is purgatory. So purgatory makes rational sense. It's reasonable. It's reasonable to say, oh yeah, that makes sense. That after death, when I pass judgment, I'm saved. I'm still not yet perfected. There's still a lot of knots to be untied, things to be unbound and set free. So that's what purgatory is. When I described it to my kids, I would tend to use um, analogies connected to their day-to-day life. And two that made the most sense to them were the uh, purgatory is the hot shower you take to get all the dirt off of you so that you're smelling good, you're looking at your very best before you go to the wedding or before you go to mass, before you're going to uh, a very, very special event. You come in, you're muddy, you're dirty, 
you're not in your best condition. Let's give you the hot shower to get you clean. So they get that, a hot shower <laughs> to get you cleaned up, to get to purge, purgatory, to purge away all the filth that still remains. And then, and I use the hot shower because of the purging concept, the fire. Uh, one of my kids did not like that idea that it was a fire. That was a, the hot shower was like steaming hot. <laughs> the, the second analogy was uh, getting physical therapy after an injury. Um, most of my kids, well, pretty much all my kids, I think there's one of my kids that still has a claim to fame that she has never been to the emergency room. All my other kids have been at least once, often several times with the craziest of things. I, I, I just, I shake my head. Broken bones, swollen, like incredible, like tennis ball bump up on the head, on the forehead, cut lip, forehead, chin, broken arm. <laughs> just go right down the list. Broken ankles. Ooh, goodness. And they know, so they all get the concept of physical therapy, that you go to the doctors, they treat the problem, you come out, and the problem has been addressed, but that doesn't mean you're back to normal. You have got to uh, work on it. You've got to get the therapy on it to be able to get it to improve and to strengthen and to get it back to normal to 100% full working order. So what's purgatory? Purgatory is like an intense form of physical therapy to get us spiritually attuned. So spiritual therapy, if you will, to get us attuned and ready to go to be fitted and suited for heaven. So I think at times when people hear about purgatory, it's sort of like, well, yeah, it's a temporary prison that you're in until you've paid the penalty for the uh, venial sins that haven't been forgiven. If you die in a state of mortal sin, well, that's where you end up in hell. But if you die in a state of venial sin, well, those things get dealt with in purgatory, and then you can enter heaven. And, and, and the answer is, well, yes, of course, that's, that's definitely part of the, the theology of purgatory. But in terms of understanding, like, uh, why is it reasonable to expect that there is a purgatory? Yeah, this is it. Okay, so let's go to the scriptures. And the scripture that I like to, to go to is, is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I think it's beginning at verse 9. goes to around, I think, 15, or right, around, right in that area, where St. Paul talks about what we have in common is our faith in Christ. And, and yet, how we build on that common foundation differs. So think about it, right? Each, you and I, we're, you and I, we're, you know, we're, we're here engaged in this, uh, in this program right now. Um, we have a, a common sharing of faith in Christ, probably a Roman Catholic Christian faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, we're not living the same way in terms of our response to the graces that have been given to us. And so we build off of different foundations, is what St. Paul says. Oh, I'm sorry, we build on the same foundation, but in different ways. He says there are some who build 
with gold and silver and precious gems. And there are others who build with wood and hay and stubble. And same foundation, but different buildings. And he says, the day will disclose it. What is the day? Think of capital D day. The capital D day that will disclose how we have built on the common foundation of Jesus Christ is the day of our judgment. And he says that our lives, our works, how we've lived will be tried by fire. It'll be tested. And he said the, you know, those with gold and silver and precious gems are those are going to shine forth. The others, wood, hay, and stubble, those are going to get burned up. And he said that they will be saved, but as fleeing through fire. There's a fleeing through fire. So there's a fiery process of purification, of purging, of unworthy ways of having lived our life. Unworthy ways of having lived our life. Uh, again, the four last things are death, judgment, heaven, and hell. I'll bring this back up again when I talk about judgment, but just to say, how do you envision your judgment? What is your judgment? Well, um, it's hard to, we don't know for sure, but there are those who speculate based on the concepts associated theologically with judgment. One of them is this, and I like this one. Because it, it, it strikes me as, as again, being built on a, a right theological foundation that when we come before the Lord, Jesus, in judgment, we come before him and what he shows to us is two things, or are two things. He shows us, well, the life that we've lived, the life that we've become, but he does so in the light of the life he intended us to live. So he shows us, this is who I created you to be and what I created you to do. Let me lift that in front of you. And that lifting up of who I intended you to become and what I intended you to do then casts a light upon who I actually became and how I actually lived. Ouch. That is strong medicine, isn't it? And that's strong medicine. To be able to stop and say, wow, did I become who I was intended to become? Did I fulfill the call that was mine? It's, it's strong. It's very humbling, honestly. Well, for me, it's very humbling to think, did I become who God intended me to be? And I wish I could say, yes, for sure, I know it. But I, I don't. I know that I've fallen short in my thoughts and my words and my deeds. And so that gap that exists, that gap that exists between who I am and who I was intended to be, what I did and what I was intended to do, that gap is covered by the mercy of the Lord. It's covered by the cross of Jesus Christ. Another theologian says that the, the Lord who meets me at judgment is Christ crucified. Uh, it's Christ crucified because there's a way in which what he displays on the cross is not only his, uh, 
his glory, his, uh, his glory as king over sin and death, he also confesses our, the sins of the world. So I get to see what my sin looks like on the cross. So when we theologically reflect on the meaning of purgatory, we can see from the scriptures the, the, these foundational elements that say the life we live matters. How we live here on earth matters. And one day we'll give an account for that. Even if that account is not heaven versus hell, it does also mean, well, not just heaven, but how quickly, how extensively, how much work will need to be done to get me suited, fitted, ready for the life of heaven. This then leads us to another theme that you also see in the scriptures, and it actually connects All Souls Day to us. And that has to do with the idea of us praying for the souls in purgatory. That hopefully having a realization we will be there one day, for the most part, pretty much all of us, wouldn't it be a good idea for us to grow in our awareness of the reality of purgatory and want to um, assist those who are there? Because you know what that'll do? It'll stir up some zeal and some courage to want to battle against the things that might have us end up in purgatory for a, it's called a longer stint, a more extensive uh, spiritual, physical therapy and a longer, hotter shower. I'd like to avoid those things. I'd like to be able to be ready for the wedding feast of the Lamb and enjoy heaven as quickly as possible. (laughs) And so a devotion arose that had to do with praying for our loved ones who had gone before us in faith. And it's a very natural thing. You can you can tell that there's a natural sense of longing to want to pray for those who have gone before us in faith. And I think that's one of the great gifts of being Catholic and uh, Orthodox, is that if you have a belief in purgatory, then the idea of praying for your loved ones who have died has a meaningfulness to it. There's, there's a value to it. It's not something that you have to feel like, oh, theologically, there's no reason to do it. If they're in heaven, they don't need my prayers. And if they're in hell, they can't benefit from them. Well, if they're in purgatory and they can benefit from my prayers, then I want to be praying for them. And this is where uh, you find a scriptural root for that, that it's a holy and pious thought to pray for uh, to pray for the dead. That's from Second Maccabees, and it's you know it's a book that um, part of the the deuterocanonical books, what the Protestants called the Apocrypha, which Luther took out, motivated by a desire to eliminate that text um, that referenced um, purgatory, the idea of praying for the dead, which he couldn't um, reconcile in his mind as a legitimate thing, and you know to not without going into all the details, he was alive at a time where there was where there were many abuses around the concept of buying indulgences. You pay money to the church or you, you do these actions in order to get indulgences to take off the number of days or the length of time that you would be in purgatory. And so it was uh, there was lots of abuse in the church around money 
and a lots of kind of Phariseeism around the idea of let me build up the number of thousands of years that I've been able to pull off of my time in purgatory. All right, we'll pick up on um, on on this theme of praying for souls in purgatory, but then let's let that lead into getting ourselves ready for heaven, um, which I want to end with uh, a reflection on the Beatitudes. Back in a minute. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Okay, back to Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. It's great to be with you today. It is All Souls Day. We just came through All Saints Day yesterday. And uh, so far in my program, I've been focused mostly on the reality that um, once we uh, our calls to be a saint, and, and we will get to heaven and we will become perfected, right? We'll become perfected, fully alive. And yet, this is the moment that we have. This is the moment where the saints are this cloud of witnesses cheering us on. And so, we can even now begin to live the life of heaven on earth, that the joy of heaven can be encountered here and now on earth if we are willing to embrace that. And you can say, well, what does that look like? Well, when you went to Mass today, uh, yesterday, you heard a gospel. The gospel was from the Sermon on the Mount. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus and the Beatitudes. So I'm going to um, just review um, the Beatitudes in, in the way that the, the Catechism talks about them, that the Beatitudes show forth the blessedness, the happiness that is God's own happiness. It's not human happiness. It's God's own happiness. And that's what we want to manifest here and now. And so you're going to see as we explore these Beatitudes that they're going to stretch us in ways that go against what we would, what would our human nature is going to tell us is going to make us happy. But somehow through that death, what will rise from that death is um, a, a deeper level of happiness, a supernatural kind of happiness. It's not understandable at a purely human level. So let's let's dig in and see. It, it stares us in the face with the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if we start with what the theirs is, like what's the blessing that comes from being poor in spirit? It's the kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven? It's the realm of God. It's dwelling under God's care and protection. Think of a a kingdom, and the kingdom has those that are the residents of that kingdom, those that are uh, members of that kingdom, uh, what are the subjects to the king. Well, what do they get? Well, they, they, they pledge their um, faith, their fealty, their fidelity to the king. Um, 
And what does the king give them in return? Protection. Gives them the, the freedom to dwell in the land. Uh, provides them the opportunity to have their needs taken care of. And, and so when Jesus came and said, the kingdom of heaven is breaking in on your life, it's, it's God's rule and reign over someone's life. It's dwelling under God's care and protection and provision. I want that in my life. Well, how do I get that? How do I get under the care of God? Well, by being poor in spirit. And you just stop and think, well, wait a minute. The one that gets all of those blessings is the one who's poor in spirit. Well, what does poor in spirit mean? We, I know we quickly will say, well, it just doesn't mean you're being materially poor, lacking in wealth. Blessed are the material, those who are materially poor, those who lack the basic necessities in life. They are blessed. No, that's not what it means. But it does mean that it doesn't, but neither does it mean it has nothing to do with material possessions, right? Being poor in spirit has to do with this state of being, this vital awareness that when it comes to the realities of God, when it comes to the realities of the spirit, when it comes to living out the realities of faith, I got nothing. I'm radically incapable. I lack the capacity to do what it is I must if I'm going to be faithful. Being poor in spirit is, is being desperate before God. Desperate in a praiseworthy way, but desperate because I got nothing. That's poor in spirit. It's the, it's the parable that Jesus uses when he's teaching his disciples how to pray that he compares God to the unjust judge and the person who's looking to get something from God as the importunate widow, the widow who persists and bugs and bothers and harasses this judge to side for her, even though she, what? She's got nothing, and the judge is not even just. <laughs> so she lacks, a widow lacks the, the standing in law, lacks the ability to be a powerful advocate. What has she got? She's got nothing, but she's poor in spirit. And so the, uh, Jesus is saying, if you want to access the blessedness, the happiness that comes from dwelling in God's kingdom, there is a doorway that you can enter through which you can enter and, and the power and provision and the presence of God will come into your life. Do you know what that doorway is? Your poverty, your incapacity, your lack of ability, your desperation, your nothingness, your radical weakness. And it's like, wow, no wonder we don't like being poor in spirit. <laughs> Who wants to be in that condition? Well, we want to be in the kingdom of heaven. We want to like get in, we want to go through the door to get to that place where we can dwell in God's kingdom. We just don't want to be poor in spirit. That's the problem. 
So you can stop and you can see how, wow, no wonder, no wonder we lack um, a vivid, vibrant experience of God's kingdom in our lives. I would say that there's probably some relationship between that and a vivid, vibrant experience of our own incapacity. We spend so much of our lives, so much of our energy, building up a reserve, building up a layer of protection so that we won't experience the exposure, the vulnerability, the incapacity. No, we want to be able to take care of stuff. We want to feel secure. We want to feel in control. We want to have a degree of dependence. I'm sorry, independence. And so all of those things run fundamentally counter to being poor in spirit. And so if there is a way that we would describe the experience of being poor in spirit, all those words that I've used, all those descriptors, we wouldn't call it blessed, a blessed thing. We wouldn't call it a happy thing. We wouldn't call it something that we would seek at. We would seek after blessings. We seek after blessedness. We just don't seek after being poor in spirit. We seek after the opposite. And so if uh, an, an encounter, if there's a situation, if there's a trial, if there's a difficulty in our lives where we experience poverty in spirit, we want it to go away quickly. We want to be done with it, one and done. Let's just get through the door so that we can be in God's kingdom and revert back to our comfortable, secure, in-control life situation where we don't have to rely and depend on God. That's, that's the first problem. That's why we're not saints. We're not saints because we don't relish being poor in spirit. We avoid being poor in spirit. We flee from being poor in spirit. If being poor in spirit touches our lives, we beg the Lord to be to preserve to, to pull us out of it, to rescue that that experience of being poor in spirit. Instead of saying, Lord, help me to live as poor in spirit. And in Okay, I I even hate to say this out loud because I don't want it to be a kind of like, yeah, 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 that's it. That's what I want. There is a way to be poor in spirit in the midst of comforts, in the midst of situations that are um, marked by wealth, in the midst of a lifestyle and situation that is marked by security and control yeah, you can theoretically be poor in spirit and, and existentially in the core of your being live poor in spirit in the midst of the wealth, the comfort, the protection, the security, all of those things. But let's just say it's extraordinarily difficult and highly unlikely and very rare, but it's possible. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Let's pray to desire to be poor in spirit. Welcome back to the program. Wow, Jesus, the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, that's what, that's what he begins with. 
(laughs) He launches into his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the Poor in Spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you stop and say, okay, where does he go from here? Well, it, it doesn't get much easier. It really doesn't. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Let's stop there. Let's go back. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Okay, let's let's dig into this a little bit. It seems as if that's contradictory, right? If I'm mourning... If, if it's something that I'm doing is if I'm mourning, um, how, is, how am I going to be comforted? Like, why is that a, oh, no, sorry. Why is that a blessing? You think that there's a blessing, blessed are they who are preserved from mourning because, well, they're happy. <laughs> like, so happy are those who are sad <laughs> is, is a colloquial way of saying this. You are super happy when you are really down and sad. Doesn't make any sense. Well, blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Well, what are we mourning, first of all? What are we mourning? Is is this just mourning, like just the fact that there's something sad happening in your life? No, there's something deeper going on here. Blessed are they who mourn has to do with the deeper things. Namely, I mourn over the reality that the fallen world is impacting my life and the lives of those around me. That I mourn the fact of sin and its consequences. I mourn the fact that I dishonor God in my thoughts, words, what I've done and what I failed to do. I mourn the fact that I hurt others and others hurt me. I mourn the fact that this world does not acknowledge and honor God as we ought. I mourn those things. Yeah, those things make me tremendously sad. I mourn the reality that there are those who walk away from, run away from, reject and attack the Catholic faith and the Catholic Church. I mourn the lies and confusion that the devil and the world and the flesh spread about God and God's kingdom and the church and the life of faith. I mourn these things. Well, you mourn those things. You're mourning the way in which the the fallen world is having an impact on human life. You know what? You will be comforted. You will be comforted because one day, all of this will be overcome. One day, all of this will, uh, will bend the knee to the one who is truly Lord. We look around and we get super frustrated at the things we see and hear in the media and in the news. And we just say, how much worse can it get? But the comfort we take is that the Lord is in control. And even in the midst of the darkest times, you can still come to an insight, a sense, an awareness that is so deep that the world can't touch it, that God is in control, that God will be victorious, that Jesus has overcome the world, and that Lord lives in me, so that come what may, 
I will overcome that which I face, that which I'm living, that which is happening to me. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. So that means we're not afraid to face the darkness, face the trials and the tribulations. We don't have to run from them. But the blessing will be that going through them, we come into contact with the comfort that the Lord is ready to provide. If we're going to be saints, if we're going to live out our call here and not just wait for purgatory to get things taken care of, we've got to live the life of the Beatitudes. We've got to discover God's own happiness here on earth. Okay, the, the next one, the next one is easier. It's easier on the one hand, but on the other hand, it means letting go of certain approaches to life. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. A couple of um, key words here, meek and inherit. When we think about um, the way that we approach life and what's fostered in us and what we're taught, it's, it, it'd probably be more something like this. Blessed are the strong, hustling, innovative, entrepreneurial, intentional, strategic, uh, hardworking folks. For they will conquer the land. They will get their share and more than their share in abundance of this world's goods. So the... The worldly beatitude is blessed are those who are trying wicked hard and are wicked smart and have good relationships and a good uh, good connections. They're going to do really well. This is blessed are the meek. They will inherit the land. When you think of the land, think of the wealth of this world. Who's going to get the wealth of this world? Who's going to get who's going to get true wealth? Well, those who inherit it who inherit it. Well, wait a minute. Okay, we can obviously think about that in family lines, but there's something different going on here. Blessed are the meek. Meekness doesn't mean mamby-pamby, milk toast. You can step on them. Meek means willing to be led, movable, receptive to direction, Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the land. If you are open to it, if you are ready, you'll experience the blessing of letting the Lord lead you into good things that you could not have planned or worked out, figured out, or made happen by yourself. This is a huge one. This is one that I have had to learn and relearn and relearn and relearn and relearn even until today. That the good things that I need to take care of my family will come to me by being meek more than by being strategic. Will come to me as an inheritance, as a gift from my father who owns everything. My father, my good and loving father owns the whole universe. He can take care of me. And if I'm meek, if I'm movable, if I'm available, if I'm receptive, if I'm willing to be led, you know what? The Lord's going to provide more than enough through the inheritance of blessings he has for my life. That is huge. That tips on its head our approach to life and business, honestly. 
Okay, let's see if I can get through one more. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for holiness or righteousness. They will be satisfied. And you just stop and think about that, and it's like, what do you desire? I know I desire a Powerball. It's like $1.2 billion. I've already started my little conversation with the Lord. Like, Lord, the, the money is safer in my hands than it is in many other people's hands. So just, Lord, let me win. I'll face the battle. I'll keep it hidden. I'll be humble about it. I can do a lot of... <laughs> Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for holiness. Isn't that the big theme of the last couple of days on the program? What are you hungering for? What are you thirsting for? What are you seeking? What are you desiring? What are you thinking about? What are you pondering? What are you spending your time focusing on? Is it on being upright before God, righteous before God? Is it being holy? Is it living out the call that is ours to be holy? Yeah, we will be satisfied that uh, when, when we hunger and thirst for holiness. God is ready to make you holy. The Lord is ready to, un, uh, to, to deepen the reality of holiness, of sanctity in your life, if you're willing to pursue him. I, this is a great one to finish with. Why aren't we saints? We're not zealous for holiness. We're not courageous in our pursuit of holiness. We don't hunger and thirst for holiness. And so we're, we're not holy. My prayer is that, Lord God, please make us hungry and thirsty for holiness. Make us courageous in pursuing you, the holy God, and doing holy things in the service of the Holy God. That's a worthy life. That's a noble life. That's not a life that's going to often make the front pages of the newspaper or uh, the headlines and social media and uh, web pages. But heaven sees. The saints of heaven see. That's so awesome. Who do you really want to perform in front of? Whose attention do you really want to have cheering you on? I don't know about you, but I want the saints cheering me on. I want them calling out my name because I'm pursuing God vigorously, courageously, enthusiastically, and zealously, and zeal for his house is consuming me. That's what I want. Let's, let's, let's say yes to that together. All right, God bless your day. Join me tomorrow for more Sun Insight.